Jesus made claims that were either true or preposterous. Here are just some of the things that Jesus claimed. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be able to forgive sin. He claimed to be the healer. Jesus claimed to be able to rise from the dead and to raise the dead. He claimed to be the bread of life and the living water. He claimed to be the good shepherd and the true vine. He claimed to be the light and the truth. Most of all, he claimed he was the Lamb of God, the Savior that could save all people from their sins and give them eternal life. He even claimed to be the ultimate judge of which all human beings would stand before someday. He claimed to be the source of all truth and the door to the Father. Listen to John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are pretty remarkable claims. Peter reiterated that he was the only Savior that could save. In Acts 4.11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. These claims are mind-boggling because no one can do these things unless Jesus really is God, unless he is who he claims to be. With Jesus, you either believe him, accept him, and follow him, or reject him. There's no neutral ground. That's why Jesus himself said words like these. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters, either for him or against him, either with him or against him. In C.S. Lewis' most popular book called Mere Christianity, this is the most quoted paragraph from that very, very important book. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make it your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There are people who say, I'm not a believer, but I'm not an unbeliever. I am not convinced Christianity is true, but I'm not convinced that it is false. That's neutral ground, and Christ did not leave neutral ground. In our study of David, who is a type of Christ, we find a picture of Christ. David was the, God's chosen king, the anointed one, to save his, his people Israel from their enemies. He represents Christ, though he was flawed and he failed. Christ never failed. He fulfilled his mission. But David also had that same capacity. People loved him and followed him. There was an acceptance, not just 
not just an emotional love, but an acceptance of who he was, a recognition of who he was. And they lined up. Either they loved him and followed him, or either they rejected him. No neutral ground. I want to read to you the passage we're going to study today. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 17 through 30. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mechola. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When these attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. Oh, in the killing of Goliath, David became a public figure. It was that recognition of David and what he did that brought this widespread acceptance. But the contrast is made, the more people that loved David and accepted him, the more Saul feared him. That's the contrast that we are looking at in these chapters 18 and 19. This fear that Saul had consumes him. He obsesses about it. In that fear, we see that same impossibility of neutrality with David and with Christ. The picture is painted for us in the story of David. When David killed Goliath in this phenomenal manner, he became an instant hero. But Saul became increasingly jealous of him. It says in chapter 18, verse 8, Saul was very angry when he hears the women singing about their reaction to David's victory over Goliath. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And then ominously we read in verse 9, and from that time on Saul kept a close eye on David. Just a little review here as Saul's paranoid fear 
and jealousy begins to consume him. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre. As he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. The relationship between Saul and David has totally deteriorated, and nothing deteriorates relationships like jealousy. Saul's fear of David now completely takes over. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. That's the important statement right there. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. That's where we left off last week. So Saul hatches this plot because he wants to eliminate David out of his life, out of his kingdom. He sees David as a threat. He wants to remove him. So earlier in the story, you heard about a rumor that if you kill the giant, you would be free from taxes. You would marry the king's daughter. There would be treasures that would be given to you. We find out that that was a rumor. It was untrue because Saul has a price. He wants a price for his daughter. He's not giving, he's not giving daughters away here. Verse 17, Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merab, I will give her to you in marriage, only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. This is a trap, and he certainly has malicious intent. He really wants to kill, kill David. The popularity of David is growing, and Saul is devious, so he says, why not? come up with a plan here, and I'll let the Philistines do the dirty work for me. I want him eliminated. He's taking a risk because he's invited David into the royal family. He never contemplates that the Philistines might not cooperate, and they might not be able to do, fulfill his plan and get rid of David for him. So he has this plot. If he can go out and fight the Philistines, hopefully they'll, they'll kill him. If he doesn't, they'll put a price on his head. Eventually they'll kill him. So he's offering his, his daughter. But it appears that David does not accept the offer because he, his poverty stands in the way. He doesn't feel worthy, and he, he doesn't accept this offer from Saul. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? He didn't accept or Saul reneged one way or the other. The, the plan fell through, and Saul gives this daughter to another man. So first plot has failed. Saul comes up with another plot. It seems to be the same plot 102 in verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Now Saul's so devious that he sees everything for manipulation, and this is great. This could work out. Now his son Jonathan has loved David. He surrendered symbolically his robe, his sword, his bow, his position. He loves David. And now his sister, the princess, has fallen in love with the national hero here. This is one more heart turning to David that is too much for Saul. So Saul says in verse 21, I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be 
against him. So he says to David, you have the, verse 21, you have the second opportunity now to become my son-in-law. And it appears that David had refused that first opportunity because they're using persuasion to try to persuade David to accept this offer. Verse 22, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. It seems that they put pressure on David. Verse 23, they repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. Now, this is exactly what Saul is wanting to hear because he has a plan. This is plot number two. Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. So Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. No, don't worry about a dowry. I just kill a hundred of the enemy, David. What is so shocking here is that the plan seems favorable to David. This is a trap, but David is okay with it. Verse 21, the attendants told David these things. He was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. There seems to be some tongue-in-cheek there. In verse 26, so before the allotted time lapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines. He completes the task, the assigned task, and he receives McCall in marriage. David's reputation is intact. In fact, he's even loved more. He's stronger. And Saul has made this enormous miscalculation. This dreaded enemy that he wanted eliminated is now part of his family. Everything has backfired for Saul. The two contrasting things here, David seems to have success, and the success is coming from the Lord, and Saul's fear seems to be growing of David. Verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David. Now it makes it very clear here that he actually realizes that God is with David. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved him, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. That's a powerful statement here. And this has been repeated several times, but it's made very clear that Saul actually knows the Lord is with him. But Saul makes no attempt at changing at all. In fact, this word here for fear is translated enemy or hostile. Though Jonathan loves David, McCall loves him, the people love him, the commanders love him, the officers, Saul hates David. This jealousy, this obsession, this fear. David is everything Saul wants to be, but who is not willing to be. So Saul actually is choosing to live with this fear. It's a miserable choice. I'm not saying it would have been an easy thing for Saul to surrender this. He would have had to ask God for help. He would have had to acknowledge it. It's one of the most amazing things that people will choose a miserable choice and continue to choose that choice over and over again and bring the, the miserable consequences of fear, shame, obsession. But Saul does this. In verse 30, the Philistine commanders continue, continued to go out to battle as often as they did. David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. I mean, this is all having the opposite effect 
on Saul. So David is a remarkable, remarkable man, and these are the early years of his life. And he's, this contentious relationship between Saul and David will exist for 13 years, and we will actually study what's called the fugitive years, as David will be forced to flee from Saul because Saul becomes, declares him an enemy of the state, sends the army after him, and tries to kill him. There is a, a very, very marked difference between Saul and David. And the difference is, as is repeated here in the text, that the Lord was with David and the Lord is not with Saul. David is choosing to live for God, to follow God. Saul is choosing to not follow God. He's choosing to reject him. As I stated in the beginning, this is exactly how Christianity is described. We are, the, we are either with him or for him. So there have been great intelligent men over the years who have declared Jesus is a great moral teacher. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. These were very intelligent men, just, just to name a few, and thousands more, who declared that Jesus was a great moral teacher, that they looked at his writings and said, there's, there's been no one who could preach a sermon like that or say the things Jesus. But was he a miracle worker? Did, were these claims that I read off really true? Thomas Jefferson said, no, it's not possible. It's not possible he was God. Many people come to that conclusion today. But what Christ said, I don't want you accepting part of me and rejecting the other part. Either you accept all of me or you, you reject me. David has the same kind of situation. Either you accept David and you love him or either you reject him and hate him. David, who is the author of most of the Psalms, writes in Psalm 1, and he gives us an analogy of what a person's life is like if you have chosen to serve God and you are living for God. The analogy he uses is a tree that has been planted by a river. Now, the very fact the tree has been planted means somebody planted it. It was put there with purpose. He says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. In Psalm 1, there is a contrast set up between the real contentment or real happiness versus counterfeit happiness. There are two kinds of people living two kinds of lives with two very different outcomes. David and Saul are examples of what Psalm 1 is all about. David has been planted by God. His life has purpose, it has meaning, it has significance. And this tree is now prospering, it's growing, it's producing fruit. Saul is withering, there's no fruit. And what there is in Saul's life is appalling. People don't want to be around Saul, they don't like him. You don't like to be around a person who is fearful, angry, these terrible emotions that Saul has. This psalm, which is the foundation for the rest of the psalms, kind of sets the whole tone for the psalms, introduces, without saying God, introduces that God is the one who planted the tree. God is the one who is causing the tree to prosper and to produce fruit. In Psalm 139, David says, Your eye saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, before one of them came to be. No neutral stance for David. David loved God. There shouldn't be any neutral stance for all of us. 
we are either all the way committed to following Christ or all the way willing to reject him. In Revelation, the first part of Revelation, there are seven letters written by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in those seven letters, there are descriptions of seven kinds of Christians, seven kinds of churches. And chapter three, there's a letter to the church of Laodicea, and they are a church that once loved God, but has grown cold. And what is so shocking, the letter says, I would prefer that you either be hot or be cold. You're cold. And because you are, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You would think that lukewarm would be better than cold. But the Lord says it's not. I would respect you more if you were all the way cold. You either be hot or be cold because I don't want any lukewarm. Anybody in here like lukewarm coffee? Coffee's usually better hot or cold, but lukewarm, not very good. And lukewarm Christians are not very good either to the Lord. You're either with him or you're against him. If you're not against him, then you're for him. If we understand that Jesus is the Christ, then we cannot be neutral. We're either for him with all of our hearts. It's a mystery as to why Saul chooses to live this life and this fear begins to grow. After a while, it becomes more and more powerful for him. I like to work a little bit with wood, make a few little things. And every once in a while, you're putting a joint together and it won't pull up. And I pull it out and I look and I can't see why it's not pulling up. And then I just focus and I measure and I study. And sometimes I'll see just one little small little piece. Doesn't even look like it could do that much. But I get rid of it and it pulls up. Sometimes the things that cause our lives not to come together with God, with other people, they're not robbing a bank. It's not committing fraud. It's not adultery. Sometimes they are the smallest little things that sometimes are actually even difficult to imagine. That could be causing my problem. Saul, when we first started studying the relationship between David and Saul, we weren't for sure if Saul realized why David was being so blessed. But in the story today, it's very clear. It actually, the narrator actually says, Saul realized God was with David. He still fears him. In fact, he fears him even more. But there's no attempt from Saul to figure out what's wrong in his life. He doubles down on his envy, his hatred, his fear, his paranoia. This is a moment for all of us to examine our hearts and ask, do I love Jesus? Am I with him? Am I for him? Is there any part of me that is causing me to pull away from Christ? Listen to these words by the Apostle Paul as he describes this Jesus, who definitely believed all those claims were true, the Apostle Paul. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you ask yourself, when Jesus was on this earth, and the study of the, New the, study of the Gospels, the story of Christ, 
is inspiring for all of us to read. But the point you want to ask yourself, do I believe these claims? Do I believe Jesus is God? Do I believe he's the healer? Do I believe he's the savior? Do I believe he's the judge? If the answer is yes, then you're drawn to him more and more. And nothing can separate you from his love. That's what Paul wrote to the Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers. I am intrigued by this last sentence here, 38. Paul says, I am convinced. He came to believe with certainty that there's no angels, no demons, no other thing that's happened in your present or your past or your future that can separate you from God's love. You talk about energizing your faith, energizing your relationship. When you come to the certainty that if you're for Christ and you've committed your life and you believe those claims, there isn't anything that can separate you from his love. There are powerful evil forces in this world. We all recognize the presence of evil. And it is amazing how powerful it is, but there are none of them powerful enough to separate you from God's love. There is no condition that you'll go through with your body, no condition you'll go through with your mind. There is no breakdown in relationships. There is no physical conditions in this world or this atmosphere or the political systems that can separate us from his love. If we are for him, and he is for us, nothing can touch us.